Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, published September 28th, 2020, titled, Too Good to be False? Skeptics, okay. what are they saying about the book, Too Good to be False? I'm waiting to hear from the major skeptics, though, and I can only imagine what they're going to come up with. I'm not sure who the major skeptics are, but if you're writing a book, you should already have a good idea about what the opposite side is going to come up with. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, please take a second to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. Recently, apologist author Tom Gilson has been hitting the usual evangelical Christian podcasts, like Frank Turek's, promoting his new book. Because my friend Tom Gilson has written a new book. It's called Too Good to Be False, How Jesus's incomparable character reveals his reality. Now, I'm going to admit that I haven't read the book. This will be examining the talking points Tom is putting forth consistently in his interviews. It's possible his book provides nuance and satisfying answers, but... The list of endorsements on this book is a mile long. I've endorsed it, but... So has Lee Strobel, J.P. Moreland, J. Warner Wallace, Gary Habermas, Jeff Myers, Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell, and several others who are saying there are insights in this book that we haven't seen elsewhere. I'm familiar with this list of backers, as are you if you're a regular viewer of my channel. This is a list of men whom I have read, and who write books designed to reassure an already believer rather than seriously address skeptical viewpoints. I'll admit I'm making a judgment based on company kept here, so if anyone has read the book and think I'm missing something, please let me know in the comments, and maybe I'll reconsider. Now, Tom, this book, really, who's it for? Is it for the academics, or who's it for? Yeah, I'm really trying to reach the the the, the pastor, the, the teacher, the everyday cre uh, Christian. Uh, by the way, it's also for groups, and I, I'm hoping people will read it and study it in, in community. Author wants groups of people to buy his book. Wow. Really? You don't say. That sounds like an Onion headline. Or the Babylon Bee, depending on your satire preferences. Here's the other group, Skeptics. Um, we'll get into that, I'm sure. This book is for pastors, Bible studies, and for skeptics. Well, that's the part that triggered my interest. Let's see what skeptical ideas are addressed. Everybody, when they, when they study the life of Christ, and for good reason, everybody studies what Jesus did and what he said. Well, I took a backward perspective uh, approach to that. I, I started thinking about what he didn't say and what he didn't do. So your entire approach is what we would call the argument from silence fallacy drawing a conclusion based on the lack of challenge from historical documents discovered so far. 
This is like arguing that Abraham Lincoln was a vampire hunter because no one from the 1800s specifically said that he wasn't a vampire hunter. As the saying goes, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Even if we take the entire Bible as perfect and inerrant, the last verse of the Gospel of John reads, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. The writer of the fourth gospel specifically tells us that massive swaths of Jesus' life have been left out. Tom is on very shaky ground to build any kind of case on what the gospels didn't record. I was thinking about what did people, what do great leaders do? What do great, even what do other religious founders do? And what are they like? And how does Jesus compare to them? And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, Jesus stands out. He's different. There is no one. I, I even looked into to literature, mythology. You could go into Marvel movies. You could go anywhere and you won't find anyone who comes close to having the kind of character that Jesus has. It seems to me like Thomas borrowed the literary miracle claim of the Quran and applied it to the Bible, based on some qualitative member of the quality of the character of Jesus. That he is in some way exceptional from all other characters in literature, his story must therefore be true and divine. Let's throw to Frank Drake's good friend, David Wood, to see what Christian apologists think of this line of argumentation. That is a very, very strange argument. Absolutely. Right? If you cannot write something like this, then it's from God. That, that sort of reasoning. No, now notice, I could do this with all kinds of things, right? I could say, if you can't write a play like Romeo and Juliet, then you have to admit that it, that William Shakespeare's plays are the inspired word of God. And he's a prophet, and we should follow and him, he's too. a prophet, and we should do whatever. He, and, and therefore, that Islam is false. Exactly. Because the, came after yeah, that. yeah, because he would be a prophet after Muhammad. Correct. What does that have to do with whether it's the word of God? I would say absolutely nothing. Even if no one on the planet, even if everyone on the planet tried to write something like Romeo and Juliet and failed, as far as I'm concerned, that would not tell me that it's the word of God. That would have nothing to do with what, that would only show that, that William Shakespeare had some sort of uh, unique literary style or something like Correct. this. You could say it with music. You could say, look, if you can't write a symphony like Mozart, then you have to admit that Mozart as a prophet and his symphonies are the inspired music of God. God doesn't just send texts, he sends music as well. And therefore, again, Islam would be false because you have another prophet after Muhammad. No Muslim would ever accept this as, as anything but absurd. And yet, this is the argument that's offered in the Quran. Write something like this or it's the word of God. I'm sure you could see we could substitute Bible each time David said Quran. Your argument wouldn't make any more sense. If Christians aren't impressed with this argument for other religions, why would a non-Christian be impressed by this same type of argument? Why is Frank nodding along to this? Let's talk about uh, his most famous sermon. And by the way, if if anybody else, this is one thing he didn't do is he didn't uh, he didn't get better as he went along. Mm. You you listen to anybody else who's delivering their first sermon. Um, what makes you think that the Sermon on the Mount was his first sermon? And of course, we don't really know if this was his first sermon. That's right. We don't. But you're going to go right ahead and try to make a point about it being his first, aren't you? 
Uh, you listen to anyone else giving their first sermon, and they're not going to do what Jesus did, which is deliver a sermon that people are going to talk for two, about for 2,000 years to come. Yeah, he, he got it right the first time. The Gospels were written 20 years later. Even if we take it all at face value, only Jesus' greatest hits are going to be recorded. What's included is hindsight. But worse yet is that the example Tom chose, the Sermon on the Mount, is generally assumed to be a literary construction by the author of Matthew rather than an actual sermon. One of the reasons scholars propose a hypothetical Q source used by the authors of Matthew and Luke is that those books put the corresponding portions of this sermon in different places in their books. Now, is it possible that Jesus gave this same sermon at different times in different places? Sure. I mean, Frank Turek basically has one speech that he repeats at every venue and routinely doles out little pieces of it as sound bites like a playlist on shuffle. But even if I restrict myself to Christian scholarship, there is much doubt that this was all one sermon. So it's not very solid footing upon which Tom is attempting to start this case. His premise is far from universally acknowledged. One doesn't have to be a skeptic to have problems with this. But the other thing he didn't do in that sermon is he did not say, thus says the Lord. He never said that. This is surprising because in the context in which he was uh, speaking and teaching. As discussed, arguing from what Jesus is never recorded saying is fallacious, even if you accept the Bible as inerrant. But clearly Tom must see that his entire argument requires that the listener accepts that Jesus actually said what the Gospels say he said. What kind of skeptic is Tom imagining that somehow thinks the Bible is reliable word for word on everything Jesus said? Let me just quote something you write here. You say, uh, his love is unmatched in all history and all literature. His ethical goodness is unparalleled in all history. And even the greatest author's imaginations, his teaching met methods may look simple, but you can't call a teacher simple who gives each person exactly what he needs, who never gets the least bit flustered, much less stumped. Have you never read Sherlock Holmes, watched Hamilton, or anything at all written by Aaron Sorkin? Do you think the real-life versions of Billy Bean, Molly Bloom, Steve Jobs, or Mark Zuckerberg went every minute of every day having exactly the right phrase, response, and retort for exactly the right situations? the way their movie depictions consistently did? If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. Not at all. Because we understand that this life representation, as accurate as it may be, is a written adaptation. Because their biographies are written and distilled down to the best moments, combining moments, and even taking some creative license to emphasize points in an efficient manner. These are literary devices recognized and acknowledged by most Bible scholars, and even championed by historian and Christian Mike Lacona. A common literary device isn't evidence of divine inspiration. Would Tom be surprised to learn that Sherlock Holmes solved every case he took? No one tell him so it doesn't spoil the surprise. Of course, the other place where the antagonist always has exactly the right thing to say to silence their detractors is in apologist anecdotes, where they allegedly own some non-believer in a totally real conversation. But that's another pet peeve for another day.
You elsewhere say no author, no novelist, no poet, no playwright has ever devised a character of perfect power and perfect love like Jesus. You say people like Shakespeare and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, all these different different uh, playwrights or poets. They couldn't create a, a figure like Jesus. Most writers could create a figure like Jesus. But there's good reason people like Shakespeare, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy didn't. There's a term used to describe a character who's too perfect, who's overly loved, who has no flaws. Such an overly idealized character is called a Mary Sue. Mary Sues are unrelatable. Mary Sues make a story less believable. Mary Sues are boring. Far, far, far from being some literary achievement... The term Mary Sue is a derogatory commentary on sloppy writing. The term itself originated from the fanfiction community to point out an overly common flaw in the unsophisticated writing of hobbyist amateurs. The greatest, most memorable, most interesting characters in fiction or nonfiction are the ones who have flaws, sometimes deep flaws, relatable flaws who find ways to overcome imperfection. Only the worst writers come up with characters like Jesus. Now, none of that is a commentary on whether the Jesus of history was as flawless as the Gospels would have us believe, but it is a commentary that it is in no way difficult to write a flawless character. A good, flawed character is more impressive. Even King David or the Apostle Peter, if we want to stick with the Bible characters. Yet skeptics think the anonymous storytellers involved in the story-distorting processes of cognitive dissidence reduction, legend development, and the telephone game did what none of the great... None, what none of the greats ever imagined. I say that would be a greater miracle than Jesus's resurrection. What you call a literary miracle, I call poor character development. And David Wood calls... That argument could be used about anything. And they won't... You, you could use that as, a, as in a rap battle or something like this. If Jay-Z's lyrics are the best and no one can rap, write raps like Jay-Z, he Absolutely. must be a prophet too. But Muslims would never accept that and they would, they would reject... They would reject that argument from the beginning, and yet that's their main argument in the Quran. Tom's personal infatuation with Jesus isn't enough to demonstrate he's divine. Start with Jesus's character, and then we're going to talk about how, the, how he couldn't be an invented character like you mentioned here in the text. Yeah, this is the part where it's for skeptics. Finally. But also to encourage Christians in their confidence in the faith. Oh, so not really for skeptics. Stories always come from somewhere, right? You, you've got to explain the, the story according to its author, and, and, and it's got to make sense as to who could write a story like this. You don't have, um, as I say in the book, you don't have a hockey player uh, writing a novel about life on the road as a concert pianist. Why not? It's not about concert pianists, but NHL forward Zach Hyman wrote The Bambino and Me, a book about baseball. Hall of Fame goaltender Ken Dryden wrote a best-selling non-hockey-themed novel and a number of best-selling political books. An Emmy-winning screenwriter wrote the script for the competition about concert pianists, despite having never himself been a concert pianist. Granted, none of these are as acclaimed or as popular as the Bible, but the author of Don Quixote was never a knight, Charles Dickens was neither a lawyer nor a French aristocrat, and as far as we know, J.R.R. Tolkien never actually met a wizard or a hobbit. 
So does the backstory, the explanation for the story fit the story? That's the, you, you got to take it seriously as a story. First, and I'm sure we'll get to this, skeptics don't typically think that the author of Mark invented the story of Jesus out of thin air. He would have been writing down his interpretation of the various Jesus stories that were being passed along word of mouth for decades. Second, it's a story about an apocalyptic preacher wandering around fishing villages. This situation was about as common as could be in first century Judea. They made Jesus uh, rise from the from the grave, even though it wasn't true, uh, real. They they told the story so that he could still be their Messiah, and then to, and in order to reinforce that, they had to evangelize everybody into believing it with them. And so the whole story of the resurrection started from this messed up place of um, these guys are are really psychologically unhinged. Yeah, that's not a good start for a for a story for the ages. Some of history's greatest writers suffered from mental illness. Charles Dickens, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Leo Tolstoy, Virginia Woolf, H.P. Lovecraft, Ernest Hemingway, Philip K. Dick, Stephen King. The list goes on and on. This is not a good argument, Tom. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who is the number one selling writing so on uh, skeptic on this mm -hmm. topic, he talks in three or four of his books about the telephone game, which he says, you know, it, it spreads across you know, country to country, language to language. And like one child whispering into another child's ear, and then it goes around and around. And, and he says, what happens to stories when you do that? They change. And I look at that and I go, change? They don't just change. They get screwed up. They get distorted. They get corrupted. The truth gets distorted and corrupted. Absolutely. But we know from gossip, tall tales, and legends that the entertaining, fantastical parts of stories that get passed around are what improves and grows and grows. This is precisely what we see even with the written stories of Jesus. The legend grows from Mark to Matthew to John and beyond to all the Gospels and Acts still being written afterward. Peter, Thomas, Pilate, Barnabas, and so on and so on. If these stories continue to warp and grow after they became written down, just imagine how much they grew in the decades when it was just non-witnesses, enthusiastic laypeople in the streets attempting to convince their polytheistic neighbors how great their new god Jesus is. It's going to be some hyperbole. So yes, Tom, whatever truth there is in the Jesus story got distorted and corrupted to the point we possibly can't know what parts those are. Meanwhile, all evidence points to the supernatural parts you're so impressed with being the parts that grew. There is a character in this, uh, in this story who is the same character in all four uh, landing points, you might say, all four Gospels. Is it possible that Tom is unaware that it's nearly unanimous in New Testament scholarship that the Gospels are literarily interdependent? Over 90% of Mark is copied into Luke and Matthew, word for word in the original Greek, and modern scholarship affirms that the author of John had access to the others. When there's this level of copying, of course they're going to have the same character. Was Tom also surprised that the characters from the Harry Potter books were in the Harry Potter movies? He's the same character. He's perfectly consistent. Even with all the copying, Jesus is not consistent. While copying Mark, 
the author of Luke went out of his way to remove all of Mark's references to Jesus' suffering or confusion. In Mark, Jesus is a suffering servant. In Luke, he's strong and immune. Rather than studying what Jesus didn't do, study the ways that the gospel authors made deliberate changes to their source materials, seemingly to make subtle points to support their own pet theologies. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened in one gospel, much less four. Again, the four gospels are entirely literarily dependent upon each other. I can't believe either man can say this with a straight face. These texts were authored in different places. It wasn't like they were all in contact with one another either. They all had copies of Mark, and sometimes just copied it word for word. Plagiarism doesn't require you to sit in the same room. It would take a genius, as you put in your book. I don't see anything here that would take a genius, let alone necessarily divine. This is all mundane. It just seems like more of a miracle, as you put it, Tom, to suggest that these four Gospels with this supreme character of Jesus in it, that not even novelists, the greatest novelists of all times, could have created. Is that is that the sort of thing you'd read and say, wow, that could only come from God. No one could ever write anything like this. You have to look at the Gospels and say, do they read like they came from this source? And, and they just don't. They don't read like anything, really, other than true reportage. There is significant debate in scholarly circles about what genre the Gospels are. Pure fiction? History? Or is Gospel actually a separate genre of theological narratives? The author of John, for example seems to play fast and loose with the timing details of Jesus' death story to accentuate theological points of Jesus being a Passover lamb. The author of Matthew adds in apocalyptic details like curtains tearing and zombies rising, details that most consider to be literary devices rather than historical events. It may well be that the gospel authors happen to be reporting about true events, but to say that the author's priority was accurate reporting rather than conveying a theological message would put you in a tiny minority view, even among the most Christian-affirming scholarship. The fact that this is even up for debate should be enough to show that there isn't the kind of self-evident divine perfection in transmission that Tom is pitching today really yeah. seems much more plausible to suggest that Jesus created the Gospels in the sense that he really existed, and then they wrote it down. It wasn't as if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John got, got together or separately and said, let's come up with a, a fictional character called Jesus. In the 6th century, a bard named Anaran recorded a collection of poems that had been circulating and recited in bars and taverns for hundreds of years. They featured a heroic figure called Arthur. No one suggests that Anaran invented the character of King Arthur. He wrote down what he heard people saying. Nennius of Wales later wrote the history of the Britons, expanding upon this King Arthur's implausible exploits. Again, not from his imagination, but rather recording traditions. By the time Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote his version, somehow the mystical figure of Merlin had been woven in, and so on. None of these writers had to get together, there's no evidence that these writers personally invented characters. Their writings serve as snapshots of the stories that took a life of their own. And this is what we see in the Gospels. A simple collection of the stories that emerged from the early community of believers. 
Like in our observations of the spreading of modern memes, it was the best and most useful versions of the individual Jesus stories and sayings, the ones that won converts, that would be the ones that were most repeated and most ingrained in the community, and therefore the ones written down. There's nothing supernatural at play here. That would take more of a miracle than to just say there was a person named Jesus who didn't said and did these things, and we recorded it. Here they are. If your story has no distinguishing features from mundane legend development, then your standard for miracle is pretty low. You, you don't think that this is so amazing that it, it couldn't be written by a human being? You say, I love this line, quote, the poets must have been superior to the hero. Any inventors of Jesus would have had to surpass Jesus himself. And then you write plausible with a question mark. Is that plausible? Yeah, I don't think that's plausible. So I, and I would say almost almost anyone, almost anyone, a, a six-year-old could write something like this. Anyone can write a character superior to themselves. You just have to have the character react more quickly or nobly than you would. With insights you didn't have until later. Leave out some of your faults. Have the character perform feats you cannot or just manipulate the circumstances around them. As I've dealt with uh, which what I call internet atheists, you know, what they typically say was that, you know, Jesus wasn't that good after all. You know, he didn't, um, he didn't condemn slavery. See, we could just copy Jesus exactly as he is, but also throw in a line about not owning other humans. Boom. We'd instantly have a character better than Jesus. Everything so far that I've heard from skeptics, there's something that they miss. We've got uh, examples of Jesus' per perfection, and the most, uh, the, the clearest one is the way he has all this power and only uses it for others, unmatched in all history and literature. I can point you to any number of takes on Superman where he uses his power only selflessly. But modern iterations stray from the morally perfect Superman for audience interest's sake. But the perfect version can easily be done. See also Captain America. Character perfection is lazy writing, not divinely sophisticated writing. Also, while I don't personally attribute a causal relationship between Jesus and the pantheon of dying and rising gods that predate Jesus in history, the fact that a compelling case can be made that Jesus was a copycat savior should at least demonstrate that this concept is not unique, certainly not divinely unique. They, 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 there has to be some kind of an explanation for that. Even if you're not sure you like all of Jesus, there's something there that their legendary processes just doesn't explain. Does your book point to something the legendary processes can't explain? Because your interview's sure of not. What I'm seeing is a man who's overly impressed with a book that is popular and personally affecting. When I was a kid, I'd never seen anything like Star Wars before, and it shaped my life going forward. It happened to capture the world's imagination, where Hidden Fortress and Flash Gordon did not. But that's a matter of timing, packaging, and execution, not substantive newness. Or what kind of writer could create a character like Jesus? The answer is no one. Like humans, the Gospels are not a product of a single creator, but rather the result of legendary evolution natural selection of the audience approval, acting upon storytelling variations, just like memes. Uh, they have to be historical because there's no other explanation on record that fits. The, the skeptic scrambler idea doesn't fit. Like a young earth creationist, Tom is imagining something that began perfect, 
and became corrupted over time, rather than something that started simply and grew and adapted over time. He's got the whole thing backward. But maybe his entirely inaccurate Skeptic Scrambler straw man label will catch on, like Kent Hovind insisting that scientists claim we descended from rocks. It might appease the faithful who don't think about it, but it poisons the well and misrepresents the actual objection. This is how we know that Tom's book is not actually meant for skeptics. It's really mm -hmm. hard for me to, to believe that Jesus is the most influential human being in history if he didn't rise from the dead. This is called the argument from incredulity, assuming something is correct because something is difficult to understand or imagine, or merely because it would affect already held beliefs. In 1992, Michael Hart put out his latest revision of his book, The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. According to Hart, Jesus is only number three. He ranks the prophet Muhammad and Isaac Newton in the top spots. Does this mean that Newton and Muhammad also raised from the dead? Should I doubt Jesus' divinity just based on the fact that arguments can be made for stronger influence of others? Tom and Frank's argument would suggest that I should. When I have a problem with, the with what the Bible says, uh, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem's with me. I better work on that. Wait, what? Let me hear that again. When I have a problem with, the with what the Bible says, uh, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem's with me. I better work on that. Okay. So that is how we know this isn't for a skeptic. Tom has a conclusion and is merely out looking for evidence to affirm that conclusion rather than letting the evidence lead him wherever it goes. To say mm -hmm. that Jesus was wrong is not an option. <laughs> to say that Jesus was wrong is not an option? Not an option? Frank has given up all pretense at seeking truth. Whatever you believe, wherever your truth journey takes you, please do not take this kind of advice. Truth has nothing to fear from doubt. Nothing to fear from questions. Nothing to fear from investigation. Only what is false, only what is dogmatic, must be protected. If somewhere within the Bible, I were to find a passage that said 2 plus 2 equals 5, I wouldn't question what I'm reading in the Bible. I would believe it, accept it as true, and then do my best to work it out and to understand it. If I'm making wrong inferences about Mr. Gilson's book, and you've read it, let me know in the comments. But until then... I think I'll let his unconvincing arguments in his interviews be enough for me for now. When we turn to the argument from literary excellence, it's flawed in so many ways. You say, how can this be the foundation is, I'll be honest, one of the worst arguments I've ever seen for any position ever. And I'm a, philo I'm a philosopher. That's what I do. Pretty much all we do is examine arguments. If you'd like to explore much better arguments for the Jesus of the Bible, tap the thumbnail on the screen now and I'll see you over there. Thanks for watching, and a huge thank you to my financial supporters. Later.